0: From The Advocate Magazine, in partnership with GLAAD, I'm Jeffrey Masters, and this is LGBTQ&A. This week, we are kicking off LGBTQ History Month with someone who is living queer history and that is Sender Tammy Baldwin. She is both the first out lesbian elected to the House of Representatives and the first lesbian elected to the Senate where she now serves. Additionally, she was also the first woman to serve from Wisconsin in both of those roles. So women's history, queer history, it is all intertwined here. Today we talk about this historic career and I also want to know how she's thinking about the current state of LGBTQ rights in the US. We have seen some very scary steps backward recently with abortion and other things, and I think that Sender Baldwin is the perfect person to talk to about how worried or not we in the queer community should be right now. So without further ado, here she is. From the very beginning, your career has been defined by firsts. The first woman, the first LGBTQ person specifically regarding being gay. Were you known as the gay congressperson, the gay senator? How much was that a part of your identity in the public's mind?
1: You know, that's so interesting because the first office I ever ran for was the Dane County Board of Supervisors. And I was the third gay person elected to the Dane County Board. And I look back sometimes at that experience and wonder would I have had the courage to be the first if I hadn't have had these incredible role models who had at least paved the way for me? And then thereafter, I was the first openly gay person elected to the state legislature and the first, you know, but I had had these incredible role models and, you know, it's hard to be it if you can't see it. And so I remember just seeing their leadership and they also encouraged me to run and to run out and sort of said, you know, you're not going to be in the closet. You have you have company here. So that's kind of the, the ancient history that a lot of people don't know. Let me tell you about a time when I was running for the state legislature and every story written about my candidacy was you know can a gay woman win are the voters ready and it was all about it was all about that it was also the year of women in politics remember 1992 when Anita Hill and all of that and everyone was running for office so so i got asked a lot about being the first woman the first out lesbian and i finally sort of had a conversation with some of the reporters locally who were going to be covering me for the whole race And so they were coming back and coming back. And I said, it's fair to write that story once. Can the gay person win? What's your gay agenda? (laughs) Whatever it is, you know? But it's not fair to write it every single time. And I'm running to be a representative for all my constituents. And I have a very broad, a very progressive agenda that has to do with jobs and healthcare and quality childcare and mental health services and all sorts of things that I work on to this day. And, And I think they did get better at it. Each of the reporters who was sort of covering me realized that that was a fair request.
0: And that's so interesting that you brought up that when you were first elected, when you were 24, that you were the third gay person to have that role. Because I was wondering, and I feel like it's distasteful to ask, but I was wondering if you considered not being out at that time.
1: Well, here's here's the issue. Uh, and that is that when I was campaigning, my campaign literature said where I stood on local issues affecting the LGBTQ community. But nobody at the doors, when I knocked on their doors and said, I want you to vote for me, I want, I want you to elect me to the county board, I'm working on this and all of these things, nobody ever said, are you gay? And so I was trying to figure out how I how do I be true to I'm running as an out lesbian? It just doesn't necessarily come up in conversation. Now, as the reporters, you know, the the media covers it, but not necessarily the average voter who you're having a conversation with. The closest I came to sort of putting it in their face is just talking about how our county needed stronger anti-discrimination policies and that I would be pushing for that.
0: We also live in a time now where it's like very identity forward. Like, hi, I'm Jeffrey, I'm gay, I'm queer, I'm from the South, I'm Jewish. I think like you've always done the exact opposite. As an example from the most recent Democratic National Convention, you know, you didn't introduce yourself and say like, hey, I'm a lesbian. You just were like, here's what's wrong with the country and here's how we're going to fix it. It's always been issues first. And so it sounds like that's something you learned early on.
1: Yeah, but not to suggest that at least when I was running for Congress, we knew from our own polling that about 80% of my constituency knew that I was running a history-making campaign and that I was would be the first, you know, lesbian elected to the House of Representatives. The only ones who had ever served before came out while they were in office. So this was kind of, can we do this from scratch type of question? So there's a huge awareness of it, but not necessarily something that came up in my debates with my or with my opponents. So it was really interesting that the awareness was really high.
0: And that was for the first congressional election in the late 90s you ran for. Yep. There's kind of like a, a script that politicians have when they like acknowledge their husbands are wise, maybe they'll kiss their partner on the cheek and then take the stage. Were you doing those things as well?
1: Well, I was single at the time I was running for the state legislature. So Sadly. Um, but yes, I, I certainly acknowledged when I was partnered, I certainly acknowledged support and in the context of introducing my whole family.
0: I just wondered if like behind the scenes, they were like, hey, they know you're a lesbian, like, but like, don't kiss your partner if you were having discussions like that.
1: No, I, I, yeah, no, I wouldn't. I I just am who I am. right?
0: And so now you're not the only queer person in Senate. You know, there's two in the Senate, there's nine in the House of Representatives. It's kind of amazing. But like early on, were you like required to like speak up on behalf of all gay people? Like were they turning to you in meetings and saying like, hey, Senator, like you're gay, like what do gay people think about this?
1: Actually, it was kind of different. When I was in the House of Representatives, one of the things that I really wanted to do was make myself available for conversations with colleagues of both parties. To be able to get them to voting yes on the Matthew Shepard Hate Crunch Prevention Act, to get them to a place where they could vote yes for, back then it was the Employment Non-Discrimination Act, now it's the Equality Act, and try to prevent passage in Congress of an anti-marriage bill that was floated or actually constitutional amendment, I think. It, well, that was at the state level mostly, but it's what often sit down and talk about, say, and uh, the Employment Non-Discrimination Act. And it was really interesting because what I would find out oftentimes is that particularly my Republican colleagues would say, you know, I have a cousin or I have a son or whatever, who's gay. And, and yet my district is so opposed to this and I'm getting so many letters, et cetera. And then you sort of walk through, well, how, how do I get them to yes? They must care about their family member. Maybe they'd be uh, encouraged to know that many of the big corporations in their district have already passed non-discrimination policies and would have their back if they voted yes. You, know, you sort of figure out, but, but yeah, they would ask candid questions of me, not what do gays think about this, But how can I explain this vote to my constituency?
0: I just feel like that's not dissimilar to how it's reported many Republicans feel behind closed doors about like the former president, right? We hate him, but our constituents love him and like how to bridge that divide. Are you saying it was a very similar thing back then about LGBTQ issues?
1: Yeah, very much so. And, you know, it always also gives me the excuse to encourage our community to be involved politically and speak out because- The other side's really organized. I'll tell you, just working on the Equality Act this session, when it was first introduced and had its hearing in the U.S. Senate, the number of calls opposing it compared to the number of calls supporting it were incredibly lopsided in in opposition to it. And I know that's not the reflection of the sentiment of my district through other means, right, you know, whether it's polling or just knowing how far we've come in the state of Wisconsin, we still have a ways to go. But but, yeah, the calls to the office were disproportionately in opposition when I was first out uh, first out in office. I would go to a lot of straight groups and give LGBTQ one, you know, civil rights 101. But whenever I was talking to LGBTQ audiences, I was giving them legislative politics 101. So it's like we got to we got to win these rights. We got to work to do that. And it was a really interesting sort of bifurcation of what I was talking about in the different groups.
0: (laughs) And so even for you. Your constituents in Wisconsin, you're saying, were calling your office at significantly higher numbers being opposed to the Equality Act.
1: Yes, I am saying that. Now, this is not, you've probably heard the, you know, the, the terms grassroots versus astroturf. So astroturf is sort of synthetic support. So these calls were clearly generated by, you know, somebody getting a postcard in the mail saying, call your senator right now to tell them, you know, something horrible is going to happen. And if you pass this legislation and that's what they were doing. And and because the things that were being said were so similar, you knew there was something generating, you know, there's some Astroturf organizations that that actually call people up, get you know, get you on the phone. Jeffrey, um, are you upset about how how high your prescription drug costs are, or whatever, or you know, student debt or whatever? I'm going to patch you through to your congressperson so that you can tell them that that's that you feel strongly and you want them to pass or oppose X, right? And so there's lots of sophisticated ways for generating these calls that aren't just the grassroots, but we have to be up to responding to that.
0: Well, we've mentioned the Equality Act a few times. And just to be completely honest, I am not optimistic that it will pass in the current Senate. Are you?
1: Well, I'll tell you a couple things. One is, right now, the rules of the Senate provide that to pass substantive legislation like the Equality Act, we need 60 votes. And we only have 50 Democrats, 49 of which are signed on to the Equality Act. So we would need either all 50 Democrats plus 10 Republicans or maybe 11 Republicans and that one Democrat doesn't doesn't vote. Yes, I don't know. But that's the current rules. And that's what all um, of us as advocates are working to achieve. And I've been meeting one-on-one with Republicans who have, you know, either a track record of having supported ENDA in the past and might uh, look at a broader bill, which is necessary because of the lack of protections in, in the States or want to get to yes, because they have a loved one they want to protect or want to get to yes, because they want to be able to say I was on the right side of history, whatever their reason I've been sort of meeting one-on-one with individuals see if we can get close to that 10. I think, you know, if we could even get five, frankly, I think there'd be some momentum of, of okay, I, I wouldn't be alone in in supporting this, you know, sort of bring some others over the finish line. Now, then there's the other prospect. The other track is there's a number of bills that are being stymied right now because of the filibuster and the 60 vote requirement. And uh, the question is, are we... Are we going to confront that? I, for one, support getting rid of the filibuster, getting rid of that 60-vote majority, or creating reforms that don't allow the minority party to to prevent forward progress. So we will probably end up having that debate maybe sooner rather than later. It might not necessarily be around the Equality Act. It may be something else that, um, you know, voting rights or uh, the debt ceiling or who knows, but we're going to get to it.
0: You think this year?
1: In terms of the filibuster, I think, we'll, I think we'll start seriously. We'll have to.
0: So to my question about your optimism that the Quality Act will pass, do you think it will pass in President Biden's first term in office?
1: I wouldn't, I wouldn't describe myself as optimistic. I'd describe myself as hopeful and working really hard to get there.
0: Well, when it comes to these more recent advances— marriage equality again, but also more recently Bostock v. Clayton County about LGBTQ employment discrimination. I think that I perhaps naively would have looped these in with the way that I thought about Roe v. Wade, that they were just quote-unquote settled law. And yet with this new restrictive law in Texas and the subsequent declining by the Supreme Court to delay implementation, you know, we're seeing how fragile these things are. How worried are you and do you think we should be that we may go backwards on these advances that do concern the LGBTQ community?
1: We always have to be vigilant, but I feel as though with regard to marriage equality that all of the predicted ways in which the sky would fall and people would be, you know, think of all the arguments we were hearing during the efforts to get marriage equality. None of the doomsday situations that people have talked about have come true. And that's why I think it's probably under less threat than some of the other advances that we've seen.
0: I mean, not to keep talking about like marriage equality, as in that's like the only issue we care about, but using it as an example, you know, Barack Obama ran for his first term being opposed to marriage equality. And now years later, it's unthinkable that any democratic politician wouldn't support it. And so I feel like that is what we've seen from the outside, but you have the unique experience of having worked in Washington throughout this, you know, very quick change. Were there indicators that you saw in Washington that there was this change like on the horizon?
1: Oh. Interesting. I mean, look, I I remember when I first came into the House of Representatives, there was not a single federal statute that referenced the community. And I remember remember vividly coming back from the White House on the day that President Obama signed the Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Hate Crimes Prevention Act. And I was doing a little social media video with a staff member. And uh, So I said, you know, it's hard to fathom that this is the first time that our community is now reflected in in federal statute. And after we finished recording, the staff person said, I think you made a mistake. Then it was Congresswoman Baldwin. I think you made a mistake, Congresswoman. Um, I think it's the first time this president signed something into law, you know, that mentions the LGBTQ community. I said, nope, it just happens to be the first time ever think how far we've come since then, you know, we, okay, then we did hate crimes, we did the repeal of don't ask, don't tell, and a number of executive orders, which aren't statute, but et cetera. And then, you know, the court in marriage equality, and now uh, we have at least a part of the Equality Act enshrined in case law, dealing with employment. And so all of those things, I mean, such great strides. And Partly through legislation, partly through court cases, but it is a new world. And uh, that is pretty amazing to have witnessed in a short period of time, but we still have a long way to go.
0: (laughs) With all these strides, again, you were one of 11 in the current Congress. Has it caused you to have to rethink your identity now that you're not the only queer woman there?
1: No, I mean, I can be maybe a wise elder among the lesbians on. <laughs> I'm kidding. It is great to see the numbers grow. means a lot of people when when they learn about me going, they they say kind of like Wisconsin, really, Wisconsin. We would have thought the first out lesbian would be from California or from New York or from you know at least at least a coastal state, right? You know, what what's what's with Wisconsin? And we do do have a a number of firsts, by the way, with regard to LGBTQ history. We were the first state to pass a non-discrimination law in housing, employment, education, and public accommodations back in 1982, protecting people on the basis of sexual orientation. It did not include gender identity and still to this day does not. But it was signed into law by a Republican governor, believe it or not, 1982, next state would... Took seven years to do it, but okay. So enough about Wisconsin. It's great to see Minnesota elect an out lesbian, and Kansas elect an out lesbian, and you know the the list goes on. This is this is in the heartland. This is, I think, uh, evidence of real strides, and I couldn't be prouder than to see more and more openly LGBTQ people elected to office. One other quick observation about that. When I was first elected to the county board back in 1986 there was an effort to have a meeting of all the out LGBTQ elected officials and we did we got together and so I was elected in 1986 I think 14 people showed up and we in our meetings we were like who who's out who wasn't able to make it and well there's that Mayor in Iowa, and there's that parliamentarian somewhere else, and we called ourselves international because there was one member of the British Parliament who attended. But really, we thought, from the best we could calculate, and you couldn't Google things back then, but um, that that there were probably two dozen out-elected officials in the world. And today, in the U.S. alone, we're pushing upwards to a thousand. Um, Now, maybe only 11 in Congress, but I mean, it is really uh, another way to track progress. But we're still far below uh, our numbers in in the population.
0: And when it comes to working with politicians across the aisle, I understand having policy disagreements. Yeah. But when someone is lying about the results of the presidential election— how do you just ignore that in order to get anything else done with these politicians?
1: Well, uh, you don't ignore it. It's very serious. Part of leadership is truth telling. <laughs> Part of leadership is also pointing out when there is a big lie and it's being perpetrated. And I, I don't spend. A, or I, I would say it's not insignificant the amount of time I spend trying to either tamp back at conspiracy theories around the coronavirus pandemic or uh, the uh, big lie about the last elections. Um, We have got to rely on facts and we have to push back when misinformation is flying
0: around. And and so with the the big lie about the election, does it feel less like feasible working across the aisle now compared to when you first joined the Senate?
1: You know, it it varies so much from issue to issue. I'll tell you, the one thing I would say is that over the course of time where I've seen ramping up of partisanship, it seems like there's more issues and more legislative measures that, say, Mitch McConnell and the Republicans want to say, this issue is what divides Democrats and Republicans. You know, we we must stop it. But as we saw on infrastructure, as we saw on you know, a number of other pandemic response under the Trump administration that Congress worked to, to gather on. There are things we can work together on, but it it almost rests on Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy not saying this is the dividing line between Democrats and Republicans. And so, you know. <laughs> You're seeing that right now on the continuing resolution that'll keep the government open and raising the debt ceiling. These are things we all did together, you know, in in a different era.
0: So I guess relating this to the Equality Act, it is going to be very important that it not be framed as this going against everything that Republicans stand for.
1: Yeah, I think there's certainly some issues that we dealt with the last time we were advancing the measure that will, will still come up. However, you know, I think it's particularly helpful with Republicans in particular who have major, major business in their states and House members in their districts, where they are all passing internal policies because they think it's good for business and it's good for worker retention and that they're stronger if their workforce is more diverse. You know, when you see that, hopefully it makes it less, less scary for <laughs> some of my Republican colleagues.
0: Bringing up business, it's almost like these big companies now act as the fourth branch of government. I mean, when Walmart mandated masks in their stores, it was like, oh my god, they're going to get people to wear masks in a way that the government can't. But you can't always rely on businesses to quote-unquote do the right thing.
1: That is very true. I can, I can tell you that, you know, let's say, for example, the pharmaceutical industry as a whole tends to have pretty good workforce diversity initiatives and policies, et cetera. That doesn't mean that I, I don't stand up when I feel like they are jacking up prices uh, unnecessarily of uh, the life-saving products that they sell people. So I think you can, I think you can point to corporate policies, That are good and say you know if it's good for coca-cola if it's good for you know whatever um it should be uh it it should make some of my republican colleagues more comfortable to say look what we're doing in congress is actually following behind corporate america and not leading
0: so that helps the pitch process
1: (laughs) i think so say you know If you're worried about your constituents, know that there's a lot of pioneers already in your state or district that have determined that this is the right thing to do.
0: You know, I know that you do work with the Victory Fund, which helps to increase the number of LGBTQ elected officials. And one of my favorite stats of theirs is that queer men run for office at a higher rate compared to queer women, but queer women win a bigger percentage of their elections, the ones that they do run. The most recent stat is that queer cis women—specifically cis—queer cis cis women win their races 69% of the time. And I think that's pretty remarkable. Not to put you on the spot, but do you have a grand theory for why that is? Why queer cis women win their elections at higher rates?
1: I mean, I think those track some of the, especially the early data about women running for office. There's all sorts of reasons um, of folks who have looked at gender and politics. Women don't run for office, you know, feeling like, well, I haven't mastered all the issues. If it's a part-time office, it's like, well, I'm, I'm just beginning my career. They'll notice that I'm away a lot or I want to wait till my children are grown, right? Right. And so those probably are the big three that women will say, guys don't necessarily say the same things like, oh, I'll learn on the job and hey, my boss will see, maybe they'll see me away, but they'll know that I'm, I'm networking. So I'm probably going to bring in more business because I'm meeting all these people, these important, powerful people. And, and I don't, you know, and oftentimes they have somebody else who's raising the kids more hands on and they're, they're not saying I'm going to wait till, my kids are in college before I run for office. I can just note that about my colleagues to know that it's a different proposition to be a mom with toddlers in, in the Senate and being a, a, a dad with toddlers in the Senate.
0: Yeah, but what, what about that part about the queer women winning their races at a higher rate?
1: So what I'm getting to is that when women do run, they have overcome all of these things, which probably means they did study up a whole bunch And they did, uh, they were very planful about it. and, And so a lot more thought and preparation probably went into doing it and therefore a higher success rate.
0: I also think that one of the consistent things throughout like modern history is that we want politicians who are authentic. And like when you come out of the closet, there's this, you know, perception that like, oh, like Tammy's out about her sexuality. She's such an authentic person. We can trust her
1: yes I, I here's my favorite part about that when when i was running for the state legislature i ran into a fellow who i'd known on a different set of issues i think uh veterans issues and there was some article that he had written or not written read that it was obviously the first time he was learning that i was an out lesbian and so he came up to me and he said i saw that article And I thought, here comes trouble when I saw him coming up. But he said, if you can be honest about that, you'll be honest about everything. And you have my vote. But yeah, I think it was not only authenticity, but integrity and truthfulness. Yeah, I'm not hiding anything.
0: Well, thank you so much for being here and talking to us today. And especially while laying on your bed.
1: (laughs) No, I'm sitting up. I'm sitting up now. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks.
0: And that was Senator Tammy Baldwin. If you enjoyed this interview or any of our previous ones, please help us by spreading the word on social media. When you tweet about us or post on Facebook or Instagram, or even when you text your group chats, these are all the biggest ways you can help our show continue to grow. So it is greatly appreciated. Thank you so much to everyone who does that. We're on Twitter and Instagram at LGBTQPod. I'm on there at JeffMasters1. If you follow me, you'll know that next week we have an equally exciting guest coming up and that is one of the icons of act up the activist peter staley so that's next week you do not want to miss it we're brought to you by the advocate magazine in partnership with glad i'm jeffrey masters and i'll see you next week with peter staley